KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, and my name is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Is our destiny to become the gardener caretakers of a revivified earth? the earth like a placenta because we're on our way to some grander, higher domain of being. Feathers 
Where the sun now stands on this golden lens, I will fight no more forever. Chief Joseph, won't you help me understand? Our buildings pierce the sky. And our fences split the land. Joseph, Chief Joseph, should I don my war feathers where the sun now stands on this golden land? I will fight no more forever. The sky is brown and the rain is yellow. The children go to school, but their eyes are hollow. Raising mighty chiefs can't even build a fire. Joseph, won't you tell us what to do? Where the sun now stands on this golden land. Warrior, you should know not to fight. To save the little children from the pony soldiers' fight. Now, how can I live with the ones who make the rules? When they damn the snake or river, turn the fish dying fools. There's a lot of brains when you cross the Snake River. Some folks are takers and some folks are givers. Yet you know the great spirit is that's coming to the land. And you know the Earth Mother gonna win in the end. The eagles in the sky and the ravens calling. The earth is gonna laugh when the dance is falling. The coons in the log and the bees in the corn. Soon Chief Joseph is coming back home. Where the sun now stands on this golden land. I will fight no more forever. Where the sun now stands on this golden land, I will fight no more forever. What is the antidote to all this spiritual materialism? It is, uh, and I'm blessed to say the word, it is love. 
obvious bliss. It is a tremendous state of lovelessness that makes people behave so foolishly, so unconsciously. Hi, everybody. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It's about 10 minutes after 11 p.m. on the 13th of November, 2006. And uh, good to be with you tonight. A little bit of a long intro there. It was called the Chief Joseph Trilogy. We'll hear more from that particular disc uh, throughout the program tonight, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it as we move along. But let's get going here first, and, uh, well, just say hello. We're going to do sort of an open lines show tonight, open chat, but also sneak in a little bit of Terrence McKenna in the middle there, and we'll talk about a lot of different things tonight, okay? As for the music, we will be featuring music tonight from a CD that's called Journey Through the Spheres. I've played some stuff off it in the past a little bit, and we'll do it again tonight. And I'll also give away a copy of this disc uh, sometime during the program tonight for those who are interested in the music if they like it, okay? Okay, first off, though, thanks to Debbie, obviously, as always. Debbie Johnson, Free Range Radio Theater. Again, just amazing stuff from Debbie. She grabs all this great stuff from the historical archives tonight, doing Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. What a fitting piece to play before Orbit tonight, especially since we have Terrence with us uh, posthumously, of course, uh, this evening. Lewis Carroll, amazing stuff. Alice in Wonderland. I always loved... Uh, Actually, sort of one of my mantras from Alice in Wonderland, and it simply goes like this. Say what you mean, and mean what you say. I do. <laughs> you figure out who said it. Okay, everybody, thanks to Debbie one more time. Free Range Radio Theater every Monday, 10 p.m., an hour before this program. She gets things going and always sets us up nicely. And before that, Kelvin and Jason doing it up. Jazz plus blues equals who knows what. Tech radio, always fun. At about, uh, what's Tech Radio, 6 p.m., I guess, on uh, Monday evenings until 7. Jeff Wheeler starts things off at 3 o'clock until 5. Getting things going every Monday with Uncommon Light. All right, a big thank you to David John Oates last week. Wonderful program, very interesting concept, this whole idea of reverse speech. Lots of controversy over it, for sure. I got some email saying, frankly, BS. And I also got some more astute comments that uh, were a little bit more analytical. But either way, hard to say, I guess, unless you just sort of start trying it out and analyzing things for yourself to see what you find, if anything. All right, but anyway, thanks uh, to David. Great stuff. And if you're interested, you can always find that in the archives, okay? Also, last week, we had music from a whole bunch of different bands. Um, just uh, wanted to put together some stuff that I played over the last few months. And I just want to say thank you to everyone out there who's been making great music and sending it to me and sharing it with all of us, okay? If you missed the show, as I said, it's on the web, www.mikehagan.com. You can go to the program archives or the music archives, depending on what you like, okay? All right, tonight, like I said, a little different, uh, little different plan than normal. It's the 16th. Actually, today's the 13th of November, but the 16th, which is Thursday, is the birthday of my good friend and mentor, 
Terrence McKenna. For those uninitiated, Terrence was an author and a philosopher. He was a captivating and amazing, eloquent speaker and an explorer of the unknown. I mean, an explorer of the unknown, a guy who had put Ferdinand Magellan to shame. All right? Of course, in his realm of the unknown, uh, it was the mind and the human unconscious that he was looking into. And the work that he left behind and the contribution that he made to the field of science, believe it or not, and consciousness was just remarkable. And I can never say enough about T. And we'll talk a little bit about him tonight, and I'll actually play a little bit of his, uh, a little bit of his stuff for you in a little while. Anyway, Terrence left this plane on April 3rd of the year 2000, but he lives on. Let me tell you, he lives, okay? So we'll do a little dance tonight for Terrence McKenna, and we'll play a nice sample of his work. I'm not sure what it was actually officially called, this particular talk that I'm going to play tonight. I, those of us who knew Terrence, we called it The Light of Nature, um, but I'm not sure if it had a official title or not but anyway we'll hear something called the light of nature in just a little while it's a wonderful taste of what tea was all about and i'll mix up some music from a benefit project that was devoted to terrence and his family it was a tribute to our friend by a gang of people that were known as the novelty group and there's a bunch of different mus musical artists that participated in this but uh, there was a cd that was produced which was called journey through the spheres and we started things off there with the Chief Joseph Trilogy by Brian Lloyd, and we'll have more good music from that disc throughout the program tonight. And I think, uh, speaking of that, I will play another one here real quick. Let me get my act together. I'll come back in a few minutes, and, um, and we'll talk a little bit more, okay? Let's see. This is Call of the Jungle Brew. All right, it's Mike. Give us the KOPN 89.5 FM on the web, kopn.org. Radio Orbit on the web, www.mikehagan.com. As I said, one more from Journey Through the Spheres. Call the Jungle Brew. Back in three or four minutes. Enjoy.
like the word spirit. They think you have to have a philosophical and theological disputation going if you talk about spirit. Let's just define it here for practical purposes as consciousness. The feeling of being conscious is the feeling of the indwelling of spirit. by a gentleman whose name is Ariel Clarembeau, and that's uh, courtesy of Wizard of Harmony Records. Again, it appears on a CD called Journey Through the Spheres, a tribute to Terence McKenna. All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Hello to everyone out there listening over the web, also over the traditional airwaves. Whether you listen to the program live or otherwise, we are streaming live right now and every week via Cosmic Waves Radio Network. On the web, www.cosmicwavesradio.com. So thank you to everyone over there, the guys and girls that make it happen for us every Monday night live on the web. Thanks also to Larry, the web wizard, as always. Great stuff, always something interesting for you. And uh, you never know what he's going to throw up on the website. In fact, I don't know, I never know. I go up there in the mornings myself, and uh, sometimes I'm surprised to see what's on my own website. And... Uh, I love it. Everything that he does, Larry has pretty much artistic freedom with regard to the website. That's why I'm always surprised, too. But at any rate, he does a wonderful job, and I love him, and he does wonderful work. He's an amazing and talented individual, so thank you, Larry, for everything that you do for me and uh, for everybody else that's involved with the program. All right? What else? Uh, people out there that are sending art, music, and poetry. Awesome. Send more. We love it. And... Uh, Again, thanks to Larry for putting it all together on the web. Got a great new poem from Bob Bolt from Jefferson City recently. I may read that tonight if we have some time. Anyway, check it out on the web, www.mikehagan.com. Let us know what you think. Just go over to the, to the website, and you'll have access to everything that we're doing over there. Just take a look around, all right? Uh, the forum has been busy. Always interesting topics being discussed over there. Wonderful community being developed. And a live chat room up and active, as always, every Monday night. So we'll peek in there for questions and comments. And uh, I always encourage listeners as well as guests to go over there and check things out in the chat room and the forum. And I love the participation from everyone. Uh, tonight, though, we'll, we'll sort of have time maybe for some questions and comments from, from listeners. We'll play a little piece from Terrence here in a little while, and then we'll probably have most of the last hour of the program to open the phone lines or talk to people over the web and take some comments and questions from there. And I look forward to see what you guys have to say tonight. Okay? So, uh, with that in mind, lots of ways to get a hold of me. Like I said, you can do it through the chat room tonight. I'll be peeking in there. You can email me anytime during the program or otherwise at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. And again, the website, www.mikehagan.com. And it's wonderful stuff, and I'm so happy to be able to uh, present it to you, especially tonight because Terrence was my pal and the guy that had a great amount of influence on me 
and a number of other people, and hopefully we'll continue to have influence on other people if we continue to share his work. All right, what else is happening here? Uh, let me tell you a little bit about some upcoming guests. Let's see. Tonight, a little bit of open lines, a little bit of Terrence McKenna. See what else happens. Do some news probably. And um, I don't know. Just see how it all pans out tonight. Next week, on the 20th of November, Father Tom Doyle, Father Thomas Doyle, he is a Catholic priest, a Catholic priest that's sort of not being accepted in a, in a, in a, in a very nice manner by the Catholic Church right now but a Catholic priest nonetheless and someone who's got a lot to say about what's happening in the church and in particular uh, the pedophile problem and the problem with sexual abuse that has shown up in the Catholic Church over the last decade or so of course it didn't just happen in the last decade it's been going on for I don't know a couple thousand years but now it's starting to come to the fore and people are becoming more and more concerned and talking more about it and I hesitate to uh, pick on the Catholic Church alone, but it's a great uh, poster child for this sort of thing. And you can pick any institution, though. You know, pick your institution. I don't care what, I don't care what it is. It doesn't have to be religious. I right? pick an institution, and I can show you some scum, probably in the top levels of the hierarchy of that institution. All right, so we'll make a, an example of how this whole thing works with Father Tom Doyle in a week, November 20th, and congratulations to Tom for doing the program. I appreciate it, and thanks for your courage. Also, on the 27th of November, Professor Lewis Greenberg. This man is, or was, I should say, a friend and a peer and a partner of Emmanuel Velikovsky. Wrote with him, edited with him, chatted with him, probably had a few beers too. And Lewis Greenberg is something else. So we'll have Professor Lewis Greenberg and we'll talk about Emmanuel Velikovsky in two weeks. If you don't know who Emmanuel Velikovsky was, well, you've got two weeks to find out. All right, on uh, December 11th, I'm not sure what I'm going to do on the 4th of December, but on the 11th we'll have Jack Cole. He's the executive director of LEAP, L-E-A-P. That's an acronym that stands for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. This is an anti-prohibition position as far as drugs go, a legalization position from a bunch of people in law enforcement that, of course, very few people know exists because they get, they get blacklisted by, uh, by the media. But anyway, there's a whole bunch of men and women some 6,000 uh, that are members of LEAP, and they're all people that have worked in law enforcement, whether it was on the uh, police beat, or whether they were DEA or government spooks or whatever, and all of these men and women have come out strongly and said the drug war is a farce, a joke, uh, a lie, and something that has done a tremendous amount of damage to this country and untold numbers of people, people like you and me, that, uh, that live here. Unfortunately, many of them now live behind bars, and it's a disaster what's happening. The drug laws, the drug policy in this, uh, in this country is as Neanderthal as it comes and as unenlightened as you can ever imagine. So we're going to bring some more of that to light with Jack Cole, the executive director of LEAP, in just a few weeks on December 11th. We've got Jay Widener coming back on the 18th. We're halfway between the year 2000 and the solstice of 2012. So we'll talk to Jay on the 18th, a little bit about what's happening in his world. Jan Irvin. Jan was on the program just a few weeks ago. He's one of the authors of Astrotheology and Shamanism and, and uh, one of the producers and performers, I guess, in an interesting video that's out there on the web that's called The Pharmocratic Inquisition. 
And Jan's got a, a bunch of explosive information that he shared with the world through his books and, um, and through his website. He has a partner, and we'll have both Jan and uh, I think it's Andrew, Andy, uh, Andrew Rubiat, I want to say is his last name. But anyway, Jan Irvin and Andrew, both authors of Astrotheology and Shamanism, will be on the program on December 25th. On Christmas, we have a show actually on Christmas on Monday, and we'll talk about we'll talk about Christmas a little bit. Okay, all right. Who else? Uh, Jim Beard, a Lakota elder, one of my grandfathers, not in the literal sense, but uh, someone who I consider a grandfather and a great teacher and a friend. Jim will be on the program sometime in the next couple months. We spoke just this weekend. Stephen Buner, Stephen Harrod Buner, back on the program sometime soon. John Major Jenkins will probably have a report from John. Uh, when we do the show with Jay Widener on December 18th, John Major Jenkins, I think he's in Peru right now, somewhere in South America, and he's got a lot going on for sure. So we'll get an update from John, and we'll talk about that on the program with Jay on the 18th of December. Lots of other stuff happening. Got former Nebraska State Senator John DeCamp. It's unfortunate that we couldn't have John DeCamp on directly after we had Father Tom Doyle because their work is is related. At any rate, John DeCamp, the author of the Franklin cover-up, which is just a remarkable story and uh, one that everyone should know about, we'll, um, we'll talk with John in just a few weeks, hopefully uh, before the end of the year. Actually, uh, looking at the schedule, it probably won't be before the end of the year unless we can do it on December 4th, which is possible. Uh, so we'll see about that. I'll actually try to do that, I think, on the 4th of December. But we'll see. And, I don't know, lots of other stuff going on, okay? All right, what else do we have here for you? Notes that I wanted to mention. Oh, I spoke with Lizzie today, and I should just say this just because I love Lizzie and Tony. Lizzie West and the White Buffalo Acoustic and Unplugged on Saturday, November 18th, down at the Shea Cafe. That's in Columbia, down on Hit Street. If you're interested, uh, you can get down there and have a great time with Lizzie and Tony and the whole gang that hangs out with them. They will sing a set of songs, basically acoustic, and read some stuff from Lizzie's new novella which is called The Wonderful Adventures of Eva and the Forgotten Church. And I've read a lot of it, and I love it. Lizzie's a very talented young lady, and so is Tony, although he's not a young lady. He's a very talented young man. And uh, they're doing great work, and I, I, I really like them just as individual people, but I'm also very pleased that they're here in Columbia and, and, uh, and doing the work that they're doing. Okay. All right, what else do we have here? Uh, speaking of good music, my friends Jeff and William from the band Yachai have released some of their, uh, well, they have a new release that's called The Insect Sessions. And uh, it's not quite completed, I don't think. It's a huge, huge body of work. And uh, I think there's some six CDs involved or whatever. But anyway, I got the first couple. They sent me two uh, discs over the last week and a half or so. And first of all, thank you, Jeff, for sending that stuff. And I look forward to playing it on the program. We'll pick a good evening when it works right, and we'll reacquaint the listeners of Radio Orbit with the wonderful music of Yachai. And uh, for those interested, you, uh, you can find information about the, the musical guests that have been on the program on the website as well at MikeHagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. And just click on the music archives. You'll find information about Yachai, among others, right there. All right? Okay, let's see. Uh, bottom of the hour here. I'm going to have to mention something for the radio station. We're looking for... Uh, we're actually looking for some people to help us out on the KOPN Board of Directors. Uh, KOPN is actually operated by 
a corporation that we call the New Wave Corporation. It does have a board of directors. And every year, around um, the end of the year, we look for people to, uh, to join the board if we, uh, if we need members on the board. So anyway, the annual membership meeting is coming up in January, and it's time to request your nominations for new volunteers to serve on the New Wave Corporation Board of Directors. If you know anyone with a strong interest in community radio, public service, fundraising, organizational stuff, promotional skills, stuff like that, encourage them, please. Uh, encourage them to submit their names and become a part of the KOPN Board of Directors. You can call KOPN in the business office at 874-1139 for more information. That's area code 573-874-1139. And let's see, I think we'll take another bit of a break here and we'll play another song from Journey Through the Spheres. This is a tune that's called Vajra, and it was written by Sattva Ananda and uh, David Cragen, performed by an interesting band called Dyslexicon. So here's Dyslexicon with Vajra. It's Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. naked, singing in the rainforest, stoned and exalted, one with the souls of the ancestors, one with the Gaian spirit of the planet.
Sorry, that's called Vajra. Again, that song is uh, by a band called Dyslexicon. And uh, from a CD called Journey Through the Spheres. You're listening to Mike Hagen, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, let's do space weather here, okay? All right. Uh, if you were paying attention to the SOHO satellites or anything that's happening on the sun over the last few days, you would know that Earth is exiting a solar wind stream that caused amazing and beautiful aurora borealis when that wind from the sun first hit the planet or the magnetosphere of the planet back on November 9th and the 10th. If we have another display like that, it'll be at least a week away probably or maybe sooner. It depends on what this uh, sunspot number 923 does. It may intervene with a outburst of some sort, a flare or CME or something like that. But at any rate... Um, Wonderful stuff in the northern hemisphere. If you've got a camera, or if you're up in the morning, early hours, or up late at night, amazing aurora borealis this time of year up in the north, especially when you have a sun that's uh, when you have a sun that's as active as as our star has been for the last eleven or twelve years. And um, you know, it's interesting. I get all these photos from people that like to photograph the sun and stuff, and sometimes. Things show up in my email uh, with question marks on them. This one was an image that was taken uh, from San Francisco, and uh, it's a picture of the setting sun, and it looks like there's some funky sunspots in the middle of this picture right on the disk of the sun, but it turns out that these are brown pelicans, <laughs> one diving, as a matter of fact, and uh, another one flying, and they actually showed up in this imagery of the sun. And some people had questions about what was actually happening, but it turns out that they were just birds that got uh, their bodies in the way of the light that uh, happened to be moving in between the sun and the camera at that particular time. So no big problem there. Uh, the only significant sunspot right now is one that's called 923, or designated 923, I should say. And it's a reasonably good-sized sunspot, and we might have some activity coming from there in the next few days. And if we do, we'll probably have some more of those nice aurora borealises up there in the north. And I keep saying, someday they'll reach down here to Missouri, and I'll get to see some fancy lights in the sky as well. All right, let's see. Um, November 13th, that's today, right? It is the uh, birthday. Would have been the birthday. 175 years old. James Clerk Maxwell. And James Maxwell, of course, was a mathematician, theoretical physicist. 1831 he was born and did a tremendous amount of work uh, in the 1800s. Into the 1900s, um, even Albert Einstein spoke of James Maxwell very, very favorably, said he was probably one of the most important theoretical physicists since the time of Newton. And anyway, he would have been 175 years old today. What else we got going here? The 13th through the 15th, the workshop for future directions for interferometry. That's in Tucson, Arizona. All right, uh, the 14th. This is an interesting one. People who are interested in the solar system know that a while back, maybe a couple of years ago, there was an object that was called a Kuiper Belt object that was named Sedna, S-E-D-N-A. And it's a pretty good-sized object, and there's a bunch of debate whether it should be considered a planet or not a planet. It's bigger than Pluto, but Pluto's considered a planet and all this other stuff. Of course, recently Pluto was demoted by a certain group of scientists and you know it's just a bunch of it's just a bunch of fiddle faddle what we call these things quite frankly uh you know, as far as i'm concerned you can call pluto a planet you can call it a 
a big round rock. I don't care what you call it. Anyway, it circles the sun. Right? Lots of things circle the sun. And this one particular object that we call Sedna, it circles the sun as well. And it actually has its closest approach to Earth tomorrow, on November 14th. Now, that closest approach to Earth is 87.6 astronomical units, which is a long way. An astronomical unit is 93 million miles, plus or minus. They call one astronomical unit the distance between the sun and the Earth, or the average distance, because it's not a... You know, it's not a fixed distance. We, we travel in an, in an elliptical orbit, not a circular orbit, so the, the distance between our planet and the sun is always changing, even though it doesn't change that much, relatively speaking. Anyway, Sedna is 87 astronomical units away from the Earth. That's as close as it ever gets, and that's tomorrow. The, it, the, you know, the most interesting thing about Sedna that I was able to determine, you know, we had David John Oates on the program last week. If you read... Sedna backwards, you find the word Andes, A-N-D-E-S, as in the mountains of Peru. I don't know, for whatever reason, that always stuck in my craw, and I think it's relevant for whatever reason. Why else would you call it Sedna? <laughs> All right, uh, on the 14th, also tomorrow, the 35th anniversary of the Mariner 9 mission. That was um, in 1971. On the 14th of November, Mariner 9 went into Mars orbit. And the Mariner mission, again, this is 35 years ago, took some of the most stunning pictures of the surface of the planet Mars that have been shown to the public. Um, the missions that have come since, including the Viking missions in the mid-70s and uh, the Mars Global Surveyor, of course, that was still up there now, and lots of different things that have happened over the last 20 years or so with regard to Mars missions. It's all horse caca. Okay, the the imagery that was taken by the Mariner missions in the early 1970s, the images completely blow away anything that's been taken since that's been shown to us. Okay, now certainly photographic technology, space travel technology, all these technologies have advanced significantly in the last 35 years. What technology hasn't advanced absolutely ridiculously in the last 35 years? Well, I challenge you to go to cyberspaceorbit.com, go to Kent's site, and just do a quick search for Mariner. And then look at some of the images that Kent did an amazing job of fleshing out of all this crap that they give us. But anyway, Kent was able to get a hold of the original, basically the original film for this, a couple of the different Mariner missions. And the problem is that you have to do a whole bunch of photographic work with the originals in order to see what's actually there because they're all compressed and there's all kinds of things that, that were done to the original images that made it very difficult to, to see what was actually there unless you have you know, the kind of skills that Kent has and he was able to actually find out what was there. And he posted everything. There's thousands and thousands of images. You think there's not water on Mars? If you think there's not water on Mars, I mean today, all right? If you think there's not liquid water on Mars, and I don't mean raindrops, I'm talking about waterfalls and lakes and rivers, all right? This is on the surface of the planet Mars. You may think I'm crazy, but, you know, you know, let your eyes be the judge. Go look at those Mariner images, and then send an email to Michael Malin and all these other clowns from NASA and say, one of two things is happening. Either you've done nothing in 35 years, 
or you've done something and haven't told us about it. Now, NASA is a publicly funded institution. The charter of NASA says that it's a public institution and that everything that NASA discovers and that NASA does is supposed to be in the public domain. It's not supposed to be a military agency. It's not supposed to be a secretive agency. That is uh, apparently not the case, at least not in the last 35 years. But uh, at any rate, check out the Mariner 9 photographs that Kent's got up on the site. And, and you probably have to dig a little bit to find them because it's been a long time since I've talked about this. But at any rate, Mariner, 35 years ago, uh, zips into Mars orbit and starts snapping away photos. And luckily, before, uh, before the military-industrial complex got too embedded and, uh, and grabbed control of, of, of all of this type of, of information, the Mariner photographs actually did get out. Even though you had to do quite a bit of work to actually see what was going on there, we have, luckily for us, we have people like Ken Stedman out there that are willing to put the time and the effort into it to actually show you what's going on. And, you know, it's remarkable stuff. Okay, what else? Uh, International Symposium on Cosmology and Particle Astrophysics. That's in Taipei, Taiwan. There's a good waste of time for you for a few days. November 16th, lecture on the Cassini-Gwynn mission to uh, Saturn and Titan. That's an interesting one, actually. And again, I'd like to see what's really going on. I'd like to see the information before it's scrubbed. November 16th, fifth anniversary of Genesis. What was Genesis? That was that silly mission that they sent into the solar field, right? It was... Uh, getting information on the sun. Tremendously uh, risky and interesting and exciting mission. The Genesis probe goes to the sun, checks out the sun, actually gets particles of uh, solar mass, picks it up, collects it, and then brings it back to Earth. And guess what? This is the brilliant NASA scientist, right? They try to catch the thing with nets as it re-enters the Earth's atmosphere, a couple of helicopters in the deserts of Utah or Nevada or something. I mean, just a clown show. Anyway, of course, they missed and the thing crashed into the ground, <laughs> and they were able to actually recover some stuff uh, from the Genesis mission. Who knows what really went on with that? It sounded like a whole cover story to me anyway. Uh, I'm sort of in a, in, a, in a cynical mood, if you haven't noticed. Anyway, what else? The 17th of November, the 40th anniversary of the Leonid meteor storm, first time that was discovered, and the Leonids actually peak on the 18th. The Leonid meteor shower, of course, comes from our perspective here on Earth, appears to come from the area of the constellation Leo. That's why they call them the Leonids. What else? On the 18th and 19th, conference in Canada. Uh, it's called Canada and the Future of Space Exploration. Wow. November 19th, Comet West Kahutek Aikamura at perihelion. That means it's close to the sun as it, as it gets. And Comet Kahutek is another one that's a really interesting comet, one that Kent and I have spoken about on the air a little bit in the past. I won't go into it right now, but anyway, that comet is uh, getting close to the sun in the next few days here. And by close to the sun, I just mean relatively. It's uh, 1.6 astronomical units away, 1.6 AU away from the sun. And, uh, well, uh, that's just happening all the time. There's always asteroids and comets that are zipping by and flying by our neighborhood and smashing into the sun. You know, we had that interesting phenomenon last week that I, I spoke with you about, the, what we call the solar torpedo. Whether it was a comet, who knows what it is, but an object hit the sun, uh, directly drove into the sun, and shortly afterwards a giant coronal mass ejection, a full halo CME, was witnessed by anybody who was watching. We've seen this happen 15 
16 times over the last 10 or 12 years where these objects, we call them solar torpedoes, because they're different than Kreutz comets. They always come from the same direction. They always come from the 5 o'clock or the 7 o'clock position when you're watching through the SOHO scope. Anyway, the uh, solar system is an interesting place, and we know very little about what's actually happening here, whether we say we do or not. All right, tonight, if you were up, or I should say, if you are up an hour or so before sunrise tomorrow, you'll see a nice fat crescent moon up high there in the southeast. Regulus, beautiful bright star, about 11 degrees up and to the right. And you'll see Saturn, about 5 degrees up and to the right of Regulus. If you uh, do the same thing on Wednesday morning, you look to the east, you'll see Arcturus, which is a beautiful, wonderful star, and another star called Spica that we talk about once in a while, sort of a bluish-tinted star that'll be in the east-southeast, about 30 degrees lower, and to the left of the crescent moon. Basically, Wednesday all the way through next Monday, you'll be able to see Mercury as well. And it's going to brighten quite a bit over the next few days. It'll be about 16 degrees down to the lower left of Spica, and it'll be climbing up a little bit higher every morning. Uh, let's see, what else? Mercury's in retrograde, by the way. That's uh, something that always sort of freaks people out here on Earth that are paying attention. People are interested in astrology and stuff like that. Supposedly, they say that when, when Mercury's in retrograde, that all hell can break loose here on planet Earth. And, uh, well, I guess just watch and see. You never know. On Thursday, the moon is waning, of course. Uh, the crescent moon is getting smaller and smaller. It'll be in the southeast. Spike, again, will be down to the lower left, maybe 19, 20 degrees, and you'll see Mercury rising just to, uh, just to the left, and uh, again, maybe 15, 20 degrees to, 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 the, uh, to the lower left of Spica. And, well, i got a couple other things here I could talk about, but I think we will take a break. We'll go play a piece of music here, and at the top of the hour, we'll play a piece of archived speaking engagement that Terrence McKenna did Back in, I want to say it was 94, not sure exactly. I'll find out sometime before I, uh, before I tell you that for sure. But at any rate, it's called The Light of Nature. And we'll play it for you in just a few minutes here, okay? All right, it's Mike. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit, 89.5 FM. You can find us on the web at uh, kopn.org. And you can always find me on the web at Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N, Com. And this is a song, again, from a CD called Journey Through the Spheres. It's called Earth Spirit. Back in just a few, you listen to Mike Hagan, Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia. It's not, as Milton said, the God who hung the stars like lamps in heaven, but it's the God of the oceans and the jungles and the ice caps and the rivers and the glaciers and the great schools of fish and the deserts. And it's the goddess of the earth. It's the mind of organic life on this planet.
the great news that all shamanism can attest to and is built on is the news that there is a sentient, minded, caring entity that surrounds and holds the planet in its hands, in its heart. Call it Gaia, call it God, call it the spirit of nature. It doesn't matter what you call it. It transcends the rational apprehension of higher primates. It's Mike, this is the Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. And uh, we're just about top of the hour here, midnight, straight up. On uh, now, I guess, the 17th of... Oh, what am I talking about? It's actually the 14th of November. I got the 16th sort of on the brain, I guess. But at any rate, it is top of the hour here. And uh, now the 14th of November, 2006. And we're going to get things going with uh, a little piece of uh, recorded material that was done about 10 years ago from my friend Terrence McKenna and uh, it's called The Light of Nature and I hope you enjoy it we'll do it here in just a minute I gotta take care of one little, uh, little piece of business here before we do that so here it is your community radio station 89.5 KOPN Columbia is a member of the Earth Day Entertainment Committee and we are calling all performers musicians, actors, comedians, poets and so much more for Earth Day 2007 Applications are available on the web at KOPN.org or at the KOPN offices, 915 East Broadway. Please call KOPN, 874-1139 for more information. All right, that's Julie. Thanks, Julie. We'll take care of that. Earth Day uh, participants, we're looking for you. Come and give us a call and get involved in the Earth Day celebrations for uh, the upcoming celebration in 2007, right? I'm glad we're getting going on that early this year. All right, it's Mike, like I said, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Let's get right to it here. This is Terrence McKenna. It's called The Light of Nature. We'll be back in just a little while. Can you all hear me? Can you hear in the back? Yeah, not very well. Make them hear in the back. <laughs> Okay, ah, uh, that's much better, isn't it? Is it better in the back? Good, good. Well, I would like to uh, join with Roy in thanking all of the people who made this possible, 
Mary Fowler uh, worked long and hard to make this happen. Eric Ali did the wonderful graphics for the poster. Pam here has uh, controlled and managed traffic flow here this evening. Diane and Roy are uh, incomparable treasures in the L.A. community. I was talking to someone today who said they had listened to KPFK very carefully in the month that Roy and Diane were away, and it just ain't the same thing. It's terrifying to think that two human beings in a city of, what, 11 million are what's holding up the hip. Uh, <laughs> the hip end of things. As Roy said, this is a, a benefit for KPFK and... Uh, in a larger sense for Botanical Dimensions. Botanical Dimensions is the nonprofit that Cass uh, uh, and I and Rupert Sheldrake and Ralph Metzner, Ralph Abraham, Frank Barr, a number of people have organized to carry out plant rescue operations for medicinal plants and plants with a history of shamanic usage. And we uh, have a botanical farm in Hawaii, 20 acres, maintain collectors in South America and occasionally support collecting in Africa. And uh, this is our real world political work beyond the communicating and the publishing and that sort of thing where we actually try to impact uh, some of the more, some of the negative so-called progressive changes that are taking place in the third world and disrupting rainforest culture and causing this shamanic and folk pharmacopoeia to be lost. So I appreciate uh, your being here tonight in support of that. It's very important work, far more expensive than I thought it was when we organized the foundation. and. Uh, it's ongoing, so we never really seem to be ahead. So I want to thank you for your support of that. In line with that, I've been living uh, with Kath and our two children in, the, in Hawaii on the big island for the past year and not really doing any public speaking because there was none to be done there. And... Uh, it was a very good opportunity to get out from under the electronic umbrella of the sprawl of North American culture and to sort of look at it and assess it as this practice of speaking with groups of people has become more and more a part of my life. It has sort of changed in my mind from the addressing of certain topics and the building of a talk around a theme to, to more uh, just pointing and looking and saying, well, here we are, here's where we've arrived tonight. What is the situation? What is the state of the world? What is the state of the union? Um, I think psychedelics had a very large impact 
I'm sure there's no argument on this, in the 1960s. But in a way, it was not ever anchored in anything. It was never explained to anybody, by anybody, how it fit into the historical context of what had preceded it. Perhaps because no one actually knew at that time. For instance, there was no, uh, the, the invoking of shamanism as an explanation for how plant hallucinogens work on psyche is completely alien to the literature of the 1960s. It just isn't there. And speaking of aliens, the theme of alien intelligence or of hyperdimensional organized intellect is contacted in the psychedelic state. That also was an absent theme. It was basically presented, it, the psychedelic experience, was basically presented as an exploration of the contents of the personality with a little bit of overflow into aesthetic issues. So I remember in the early days we would stack our Abrams books on Hieronymus Bosch and Piera della De Francesca and Giotto and then the idea following Aldous Huxley was that you would uh, that you would imbibe the meaning of these great works of art uh, behind the kind of psychic freedom that the psychedelic substance was going to uh, graft on to your ordinary consciousness. Well, I think all those kinds of metaphors were useful, but it's been now uh, 20, 25 years of looking at that phenomenon and also of having the future continue to overtake us with ever more demands upon our cultural resourcefulness and our uh, ability to cognize the cultural situation. And uh, I think now it can be seen uh, somewhat differently. And so these two nights in Los Angeles Uh, which are called Understanding and Imagination in the Light of Nature are a kind of effort to take several telescoping steps backward and place the uh, adventure of psychedelic self-exploration in context to frame it in a number of different ways because I think it's very important for us to know, uh, as the Hermetic Mysteries urge us to know, whither we have come, where we are, who we are, and whence we are going. All issues that the psychedelic experience, especially to my mind the plant hallucinogens, uh, bring into close focus. Here is an opportunity for a theater of cultural growth that is uh, uh, unparalleled. How did we find ourselves in this situation? What is exactly the nature of the cultural situation in which then the psychedelic response is called forth as part of a spectrum of cultural responses? Basically, what's been going on in Western civilization for about 500 years is the exploration of the metaphor of materialism, which began as a simple 
limiting case. Since we're at the Philosophical Research Society, it behooves us to talk philosophy for a moment and remind you that there is what's called Occam's Razor. William of Occam was uh, a late medieval philosopher and his razor was that hypotheses should not be multiplied without necessity. Without necessity. In other words, the simplest explanation should be preferred in all cases. The fewest number of elements should be put forward as necessary for an explanation. And following William of Ockham's uh, uh, statement of this notion as a, uh, a logical way of proceeding, um, the assumption was made then, a provisional assumption at the beginning, that matter could be uh, separated from the notion of soul and spirit that it could be divided into its simplest units and out of the activity of those simple units a model could be built up that would explain more complex phenomena in the world Cartesian materialism which uh, was applied very successfully to uh, physical matter to the chemical elements and so successfully, in fact, that the provisional nature of the assumption was soon forgotten in the explanatory zeal of the people who had latched onto this method. And so it was then applied uh, out of the chemical realm, but it in, moved into the biological realm. And the search was on for the biologically irreducible units which uh, in the 17th century was the cell, great excitement about the cell. And then in the 20th century, of course, first the nucleus of the cell, then ultimately DNA as the, as the constituent of the nucleus, which was uh, controlling protein synthesis. But strangely enough, the elucidation of the mechanics of the gene through this program of reductionism did not uh, issue into the same kind of control over the products of the gene that the same program had uh, the same kind of fruit that had been born in the analysis of physical matter and in the early years of this century when the effort was made to extend the metaphor into uh, psychology the true inadequacy of it became clearly seen so that the effort to break the personality down into types or complexes or archetypes or behavioral uh, uh, strategies all failed. And at the same time that this process of disconfirmation was happening in the social sciences, physics, which had been old reliable in the matter of supporting this particulate pointillistic materialistic school of explanation began in fact to betray it because the analysis of matter was pushed to deeper and deeper levels until finally phenomena began to be elucidated which 
seemed uh, incomprehensible in the mechanical model. It seemed as though what had been thought of as points of matter were in fact spread through time. And the notion of simple location began to give way to talk of clouds of probability and this sort of thing. All of this reaching uh, a culmination in 1923 with the Copenhagen Conference on Quantum Physics where basically a new vision of matter was elucidated. And strangely enough, the new view of matter seemed to have a very mentalist sort of aura about it. It no longer was a theory of simple location, calculable energies, and specific predictions. It was probabilistic. Now this re-emergence of the need for a wave mechanical description of matter can I think now be seen from the vantage point of 55 years as uh, the first stirrings or among the first stirrings of the re-emergence of the spirit. And I think that what understanding and imagination in the light of nature argues for is the presence and re-emergence of the awareness of spirit in the world. This is what uh, the so-called and long-heralded paradigm shift is all about. It is a vast turning over of the intellectual universe which will eclipse many idea systems and support many more. It, it is the idea of fields. Spirit need not be defined or even conceived in any sort of 19th century or mentalist or animist way. What spirit is, is uh, a field of deployed energy that is somehow co-present at more than one point in space and time. It is, uh, it is the shadow that haunts the particularized world of Newtonian matter. And it is, strangely enough, the commonest object of experience. In other words, as we move through our lives, as we project our hopes, as we plan our days, as we execute our jobs, we move in this realm of spirit. The problem is that we have been very slowly but very uh, efficiently corralled inside an intellectual system which gives no credence to spirit and therefore has had a curious effect on the validation that we give our own lives. For instance, if you look at uh, uh, positivist philosophy, which is the dominant philosophical paradigm in academic philosophy, there you learn that there are primary and secondary qualities to the world. And the primary qualities are charge, spin, angular momentum, velocity, this sort of thing. Things which nowhere come tangential to the felt world of the individual. 
Well, then there are also so-called secondary qualities, color, taste, tone, feeling, all the things that make up the world that you and I experience. So somehow we are not traveling in first class on this metaphysical airliner. You know, we're back there with the secondary qualities and the good stuff is all up front and it is described and manipulated by incomprehensible equations uh, and uh, you have to enter into a priesthood to become part of it. Well, uh, it's to our credit, I think, that we are waking up. And one of the reasons that we are waking up is because into the objects of common experience, by an exhaustive search of the objects of common experience, uh, diligent, clear-thinking seekers after understanding people who are practicing, uh, who took seriously the Constitution's assurance of uh, the pursuit of happiness, have <coughs> Robert Bork notwithstanding, <laughs> have found more than the right of privacy in the Constitution, but have actually found the right to alter your own consciousness for purposes of personal growth. Well, consciousness is like a still pool. If it is unperturbed, it returns a clear image of the world in the same way that the unperturbed surface of a pond will become a mirror to the environment around it. But if consciousness is perturbed by being shifted from its ordinary modalities, then and the extraordinarily uh, tenuous and provisional nature of what we call reality swims into our can. And we see, you know, that what we take to be solid objects, what we take to be here and now, what we take to be personal identity versus uh, other in the form of other personalities, that all of these things hang by the most tenuous of linguistic threads and cultural conventions and that beneath the surface of those conventions is utter terra incognito a no man's land the unexplored territory behind cultural assumptions suddenly starkly totally incontrovertibly illuminated to the inspection of the individual well this is uh, feeding, indeed, to my mind, it is the major factor responsible for the re-emergence of the awareness of the spirit. It holds out the possibility that we can create a new definition of our own humanness, that it was fine for purposes of disentangling from the medieval church to take the materialist route and to follow it into uh, Darwinian evolution, to recognize our ascent from previous primate forms and to sort of claim a dimension of existential freedom. But that is 
not the whole story. That essentially is the legacy or the achievement of modernism, which was fully worked out by 1927 or 8, I would say. I mean, those people, the pataphysicians, the quantum physicists, the Dadas, the surrealists, Alfred Jarry, André Breton, it was all worked out. And those of us who were born after that time and have come into this sort of pseudo-eschaton of regurgitation of modern values in art, fashion, and literature have been living in this kind of a goldfish bowl ever since. I mean, really, it's astonishing the degree to which in the most progressive and fast-moving century in the last 10 or, or 20, for that matter, there has also been an extraordinary backward current, a very strong recidivism that has held at bay the true exfoliation of what modernity was supposed to mean. That's why within the 20th century, the further back you go, the more utopian the projection of the future becomes, and the further into the 20th century you go, the more like a dystopia it becomes as we get not elevated railways, immortality, and uh, hot pants, but, you know, bread lines and germ warfare and doublespeak and all of these things. So, into this situation of retrenchment and cultural recidivism and the working out of modern values, which are materialist values, comes then the beginning of the postmodern era. I don't I prefer a different term which I call compressionism, the compressionist era which follows the modern era. And its theme is the reemergence of the presence of the spirit and its major uh, cultural exhibit or the major cultural force driving it is the discovery of relativism with regard to consciousness, which does not only mean uh, psychedelic drugs and hallucinogenic plants per se, it also means media, it also means literary expectation, reorientation of the senses through design, urban planning, the entire spectrum of effects which feeds consciousness back into itself is uh, enunciating this theme of the emergent spirit. And it is not necessarily a welcome theme because uh, all institutions attain a certain momentum toward the preservation of their own vested interests. And science and the handmaiden of science, which is modern technocratic government, uh, have uh, created a number of cultural institutions that uh, have a friction with the reemergence of the spirit. First and foremost is the notion of the public. The public is this weird idea that was generated in the wake of the printing press that there were vast numbers of people who could be treated atomistically. They didn't have to be thought of as individuals. They could be thought of as 
various uh, classes, masses of people to be manipulated. And if you could sell these, the public on the idea of democracy, which is another one of these atomistic notions. The notion of democracy is that for us all to get together and have it work, we have to assume that we're all alike, see? So we each have a vote, and then you may be tall, you may be short, you may be rich, you may be poor, you may be black, you may be white, but that doesn't matter. We'll give everybody this charge, one vote, and then we'll see how these populations work themselves out. What they don't tell you is that at the same time that you build this definition of the citizen, you also build the institutions which subvert the citizen. So the citizen is not free to act out and express the wishes of the citizen. The citizen is a consumer of ideological models that are sold to the citizen through agencies of mass propaganda. So there's this peculiar playing off of one against the other. In the meantime, what has also been happening is the institutions of language which previously were uh, pretty much left to develop on their own and, and that was the situation well into the 19th century the, through the power of the printing press the evolution of language also became uh, something under the control of these institutions and they very quickly have replaced uh, whatever reality may have been impinging into the lives of the citizens with concepts. Concepts replace reality. You come into the world with a blank slate and everything is what William James called a blooming, buzzing confusion. Well then, one by one, you isolate phenomena in this confusion and you name it. Once a sector of reality has been named, it stays still. It ceases to behave the way it would behave for itself. It begins to behave syntactically because it has been changed into a linguistic object. When things behave syntactically, they are either subjects or objects or the syntactical machinery which relates these two together. In that case, materialism, dualism, projection of authenticity beyond the self are all reinforced. So these are the factors which have uh, impeded the spirit. Into this comes the psychedelic experience. It has a tremendous force to revivify the spirit, particularly because it is not an ideology. It is not something someone figured out. It is an experience. And this is important to bear in mind. It horrifies me, I'm sure you've heard me say it, to, to think of someone going from birth to the grave without ever coming tangential to the psychedelic experience. It's like going from the birth to the grave without ever discovering sex. It means that you died as, an as a pre-adolescent. You know, you never really came into your birthright. And we have been infantilized 
by our cultural institutions to accept the notion of ourselves as citizens consuming this regurgitated science, these regurgitated scientific models which are then hashed through by Madison Avenue and then handed down to us by the organs of mass culture and this is supposed to be what we anchor our lives on. It's no wonder that uh, drug abuse, child abuse, self-abuse is rampant in this society because it all has been taken away from us. You may read 1984 and think, well, thank God it isn't that bad yet. Well, the only difference between us and 1984 is we dress better. <laughs> so I think that uh, little gatherings like this, and I feel like this is definitely a family gathering, uh, this this meeting was sold out uh, before there was any promo uh, other than Roy's show and a small mailing we did. So you are people who have passed through a very narrow filter. You stay up late. <laughs> you listen to KPFK and you tolerate Terence McKenna. So you are either thrice so you are either thrice blessed or thrice cursed. I, I don't know which it is. But anyway, it, it feels to me like a family gathering. It feels to me like we are figuring this out and there aren't that many of us, I think. But what we understand as a group or what I imagine that that we understand is that there is this twilight of reductionism. There is this end of the old model. And yet we're not ready to proclaim the twilight of reductionism to simultaneously be the funeral of reason. You see, there's a, there are a lot of people, a much larger group than we represent, who are prepared to bury reason along with reductionism. And I think reason uh, may have been caught in bed with reductionism, but it may have been set up is uh, the take that I have on it. And, and is, as they used to say in Watergate, linked but not tainted. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I am a very... Uh, um, some people even... Someone said I was narrow. I was accused of being narrow-minded the other night <laughs> because uh, I come to this very honestly through the sciences, through trying to really find out what was going on and not just accept everything that came down the pike. I mean, I will believe anything if there's evidence, if it's self-consistent, if the case is well made. I mean, I think that the first thing, the truth will be, is uh, a pleasure to hear, you know, and not some turgid and tormented thing where you have to go to six meetings and not talk to anybody who doesn't believe it and all of this sort of thing. So I think uh, it's important as the, what I call the archaic revival gets rolling, it is important for us to clarify where we are coming from 
when we when we were simply the lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe it hardly mattered but responsibility will devolve on us to say what we mean and to have a position which is uh, not only convincing to the converted but convincing to the skeptics that's who I'm after you know because I think that a great uh, instance of cultural blindness is what we're confronted with on the issue of psychedelics psychedelics are to the science of psychology what the telescope was to astronomy in Galileo's time and we are in a situation of increasing global pressure on our species increasing outbreaks of neurosis unhappiness psychic epidemics and we are leaving our best tools behind because of fairly preposterous cultural prohibitions cultural prohibitions which deny us our best weapons for overcoming uh, the situation that we are in and this is really an intolerable situation because uh, the fate nothing less than the fate of the human species probably hangs in the balance we cannot afford the luxury of an unconscious we cannot afford uh, stupidity closed-mindedness racism sexism uh, consumer materialism selfishness an absence of globalism uh, these things are not necessary for us for our moral edification so that we can feel like well-bred ladies and gentlemen these things are necessary for us so that we don't destroy ourselves and the fact that uh, this message is, get, is so slow coming out is a strong argument for activism on the part of anybody who thinks they have even the faintest glimmer of what is going on you know the future will not wait uh, I see the most uh, crypto fascist and intransigent of institutions slowly waking up to fairly basic facts such as that a nuclear war is probably a bad investment <laughs> you know so that so that even uh, even uh, as Neanderthal a type as President Pinocchio is willing isn't that a cruel thing for me to say <laughs> is, is waking up to the fact that uh, <clears throat> it just don't pay but you know we have a lot of problems it isn't going to be the millennium even if we achieve a massive cutback in strategic weapons there's still going to be propaganda sexism starvation uh, inability to correctly manage resources these things will plague us uh, unto uh, the last syllable of recorded time unless we begin to undergo this kind of intellectual cohesion the compression of our intent 
the recognition of our group mindedness as a feeling, as a will that can act in the historical context. And uh, to my mind, the psychedelics have always existed in the plants to promote precisely this. There were not language-using, tool-making tribes of human beings in the absence of hallucinogenic plants. The hallucinogenic plants create the context for integrated organizational activity. This has been going on for at least 15, 20,000 years. The problem is that through a series of factors which we needn't go into in depth here, but factors which impinged on European civilization particularly, civilizations were able to evolve outside of the noetic input from Gaia, outside of the uh, biological radio that envelops the planet and inputs into balanced tribal societies with functioning shamanic institutions. In Europe, somehow the chain was broken, the link back to the elder gods and goddesses and to the biological organization of human society before history was lost. And this curious kind of ungoverned intellectual development occurred, ungoverned in the literal sense of a machine which slips from the control of its, uh, of its governor. And uh, uh, in that situation, materialism, which is an insupportable philosophy, actually, if you have an openness, a sensitivity, any kind of cultivated feminine response to nature, it is utterly impossible. Recall that the Cartesian the point of view of Cartesian materialism pushed Descartes to actually claiming in public debate that, that animals were machines. He said they feel nothing. The apparent display of pain is simply a, a, something which we project onto them because we alone have a soul. And, and Descartes, you see, had himself had not gone over completely to materialism. He believed there was a human soul, but it came tangential at only one point to, uh, to the human body. Somewhere in the pineal gland, there was a switch, and the, and the soul was running things like a telephone switchboard operator from there. Well, uh, very shortly after Descartes, his followers just said, well, we don't need this. This soul concept was just a thing to stay on the right side of the church, and we don't need it, and they cut it loose. And, well, once you cut that loose, then you have all kinds of permission. You have permission to rape and exploit nature, permission which had already been reinforced for Western man by the New Testament, but now raised to the nth degree by the assumption that nature is utterly without soul. And this philosophy persisted well into the 1950s. The essence of, of Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism was, can be summed up in the, na in the statement, nature is mute. 
That was Sartre's position on nature. How many people thinking themselves existentialists and hanging out in coffee houses actually ever found the, uh, worked through what the consequences of the existential point of view was? Nature is not mute. You really have to have worked yourself into a weird place <laughs> to believe that, you know. In fact, nature is entirely the, something else. Nature is communication because nature is psyche. This is what we haven't understood. We have somehow talked ourselves into the belief that into the natural world of Eden, God came and made man and from man woman, and that men and women are of so ontologically a different level than the rest of nature that no conclusion about us can be drawn from an examination of nature. Nothing could, I mean, I, it's impossible for me to understand how this idea persists and has such momentum in the 20th century where hierarchy theory has very, very clearly uh, explicated the notion of the linkage of higher order systems to subsystems that are physically more simple. So you see, really what we have is a kind of fractal universe. In fact, it's not greatly different from the alchemical view of the 16th century, where people said, uh, as above, so below. The microcosm is a reflection of the macrocosm. What this is really saying is that at the level of a planet, you get a certain level of organization and spectrum of peripheral effects. The same thing such as self-reflection, self-regulation, intent, goal projection, steering toward perceived goals. You get the same kind of thing on the level of a society can be a, a beehive or a herd of antelope or whatever, and you get it in the human individual and the human society. So really what is to be seen is that we are the cutting edge of becoming. We are not a thing apart. We are a unique level of a multi-leveled organism. And we have been called forth out of nature, by nature, for a purpose. And what is our task as individuals, I think, is to discover what that purpose is and then to align ourselves with it in a way which allows the plan, whatever it is, to most smoothly unfold. Well, what it seems to be is a progressive invocation of spirit, the theme with which I began the evening, that through language, through abstraction, through magical invocation, the formulation of religions, the projection of art, the field phenomena, the, the phenomena which are diffuse in space and time and not easily located are forcing or intruding their way into three-dimensional space and time. 
if you were an extraterrestrial in a starship in orbit around this planet, what you would see looking down is a gene swarm. The species that seem to us to be animal forms extremely stable in time are actually highly permeable membranes over millennia and tens of millennia with genes crossing over, moving around, and being basically obedient to the expression of some kind of teleological form. And it was the concern of 19th century biology to eliminate teleology, to eliminate purpose and directedness. But it's very hard to avoid the impression of some kind of of uh, a tractor ahead of this planet embedded in its history and somehow channeling everything toward it so that the progressive acceleration of human society of information production of communication the proliferation of languages natural and synthetic all of these things are uh, not something going on in the human domain and somehow sealed from the general state of nature, but are in fact part of the general state of nature. And the human experience or the human animal as the carrier of this catalytic process, this speeding up and accelerating a process on the surface of the planet is not sealed from nature, but the leading edge, the leading edge of a process on this planet. Now, teleology was so antithetical to 19th century science because they were trying to pull away from the telos of uh, medieval scholastic philosophy. They didn't want God, these 19th century English atheists, Darwin and Lyle and, uh, and uh, that crowd. However, uh, we have come through the, de the so-called death of God and the elimination of a, of a theological raison d'etre for the universe. And now we're looking more at a telos which we would operationally define rather than define it for, based on ancient revelation, which was the, pre, you know, the, the previous method was the older the book, the truer it may, must be, and the Bible is the oldest book, and therefore it must be true. This is uh, what Merciliad calls the nostalgia for paradise, paradigm of time. We are overcoming that. It can now be seen that there is, in fact, some kind of transcendental object and it's best to try and describe it phenomenologically we don't know what it is but we do know that it's an, an enormous attractor of some sort and we are in the field of attraction and by we I mean all life on the planet is being drawn into this nodal point and it is possible to anticipate it through the psychedelic experience because apparently the natural and the linguistic world 
are uh, worlds which are organized along the principle of fractal curves. Fractal curves are recently discovered mathematical objects. Not all of them are recently discovered. Some were known as late as the late 19th century, but most have been discovered using computers in the last 10 or 15 years. And they are self-similar curves such that when you take a subset of one of these mathematical objects, it is found to have the whole pattern embedded in it. The Fourier transforms that describe holograms are these kind of things, uh, coastlines, mountain ranges, uh, data of all sorts when analyzed in a certain way is found to be fractal. Apparently, the world is a kind of vast spiral fractal that is achieving greater and greater closure with itself. And we experience this density of closure and this compressionism uh, as the spectrum of effects which we call human evolution, human history, emergence of high technology, the present moment, the rush toward apocalypse. The most intense moments that the universe has ever known are the next 15 seconds. And beyond that lies still more intense moments. Novelty as a kind of generalized paradigm of the compression of connectedness throughout the cosmos is accelerating moment by moment in the rocks, in the trees, in the stars, and in us. And so what we call history which is not as modern. The modern theory of history is that it's what they call trendlessly fluctuating. That's their model of the world. You get order at the atomic level, order at the biological level, order, 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 and suddenly you reach human beings trendlessly fluctuating. <laughs> it's as though you know we were Brownian affected by the Brownian movement of random particles, and yet we there, we somehow out of all this ordering, it, we're to believe that then emerges the trendless fluctuation of human history. Actually, this is nonsense. It's simply that there has never been a thoroughgoing theory of history. However, now we are ready for them because these wave mechanical ideas, the notions of closure, Sheldrake's idea about the presence of the past, the way in which the past drives the present, all of these things lay us open for an understanding of the compression and densification of time. And this is what is experienced in the psychedelic experience. Really, you know, Whitehead said of Dove Gray that it haunts time like a ghost. Well, I think that uh, the compression of the three-dimensional universe at the end of time haunts time like a ghost. It's the cosmic giggle. Here a messiah, there a shaman, there an ecstatic poet, and there the tiny ripple that is simply a congruent coincidence in the life of a single individual. Robert Anton Wilson called this the cosmic giggle. It's when something protrudes through the, floor, the forward flowing momentum of rational casuistry 
and causes it to flow around it and eddy and churn and then you like you see through for a moment and you say well what is it there was a plottedness for a moment there was uh, the hand of the maker there but now I don't see it anymore that is the going behind the veil that is the seeing into the structure of being that lies behind the conventionalized languages that's why uh, coincidence is so often reported as an accompanying phenomenon for the psychedelic experience because really syntax is dissolved and syntax is a filter for this sense of uh, eminent connectedness and when the syntax goes the eminent connectedness flows in then it's a question of what you do with it if it causes you to believe that you are going to save the world then you haven't gotten the message right that's inflation and uh, inflation is very bad it drives up interest rates so if you get that kind of a take on it you are misusing it nevertheless the most advanced yogic techniques that are known are the techniques of the so-called Anuttara Yoga Tantra and the tantric yogic techniques and there the prescription is it says in Herbert Gunther's Treasures of the Tibetan Middle Way you should think of your house as a resplendent palace think of your utensils as made of beaten gold and think of yourself as having a body made of living mercury what this is in western psychological terms is an invitation to inflation but if it is a, if it is approached with the right analysis of mind basically that it is that there is nothing but bodhi mind and there is no particularization in time and space then there is no feed inflationary feedback into the ego and this is uh, this is the kind of opportunity that the psychedelic opens up it is uh, I've said many times quoting Plato time is the moving image of eternity time is the moving image of eternity what the shaman does is he or she leaves the mundane plane and in Iliad's phrase is able to trigger a rupture of plane and the rupture of plane carries the shamanizing person into another dimension literally another dimension and in that other dimension all of time and space is beheld as James Joyce said in a nutshell and in the nutshell of time and space everything is uh, seen to be a part and a, a, a uh, aesthetically pleasing integral necessary part of the transcendental object in fact what this universe is is a lower dimensional slice of that same transcendental object well I guess what impels my career and what I really can't get over 
is that what I'm saying to you is true. You know? That, I mean, we, we, we sit here, we gather here, and even though we're talking about this extremely far out thing, uh, still all the forms are in place. I'm here, you're there, everybody sits on their ass, nobody sits on their head. It all, uh, it all appears fairly mundane. How can it be that what we are talking about is the nearby presence of an impossibly alien dimension? Now, if that alien dimension had been reported back to us by a robot probe dropped into the methane oceans of Europa, we would be all hot to go there to organize a $20 billion expedition and a 15-year plan and go out there and find out what is happening. The amazing thing is that, you know, each one of us in our own living room can be this Magellan, can penetrate into these dimensions. It really seems quite freaky to me. Freaky to me that such a thing is possible and yet that we are such monkeys or so culturally constrained or so blind that this is not what we're all talking about all the time and by we all I mean all five billion of us on this planet because we appear to be being pushed down a featureless corridor toward a furnace and yet if you would notice there are all these doors along the side of the so-called featureless corridor. And nobody seems to have cognized that you can just open these doors and walk through and short-circuit the inevitability of planetary disaster. Amazing. Amazing. Because we pride ourselves on uh, our commitment that science allows us to look anywhere, inspect any possibility. Our models are not uh, dictated to us by the church or by government or by industry, when in fact they are dictated to us by the church, government, industry, mammalian organization. And so we, we are no better off than all those benighted people in those previous ages where we look back upon them and say, well, they must have been so limited by their worldview because they didn't know about quantum physics and ketamine and Michael Jackson and cable TV and all of these things. But the fact of the matter is that unless we push through culture to nature, we too are duped we too are somehow being sold a line and uh, and yet nature is there outside of the cities you know you drive an hour and a half from where we're sitting and you're in the high desert and it is demon haunted paleolithic space it is uh, it holds the same promise for us as moderns that it held for the Luiseno Indians who were initiated into it, into their shamanic institution before the conquest, before history. So nature is the final arbiter 
of cultural forms. This is what Taoism understood and this is what I believe the psychedelic plant thing is pushing us toward. It was not immediately apparent that this was so because as I said at the beginning of this talk in the 60s, uh, the, the psychedelics came out of the laboratory and only the most scholarly of the trippers bothered to study the natural origins and the anthropological and ethnographic context in which these things were coming from, like the Eleusinian Mysteries or the Mexican Morning Glory Mysteries or the Watson Discovered Mushroom Mysteries. But if we can somehow link a respect to nature, a sensitivity to Gaia, a valuing of ourselves, a, a uh, complete placing of our own feelings and our own perceptions in the forefront of uh, trustworthy sources and the psychedelics integrated into our lives, then there will be a tremendous cultural impact, a tremendous re- orientation because the the message that nature is trying to give the steering signal on the human species comes through the accessing of this shamanic dimension outside of history revolutions are made by tiny percentages of the populations in which they are in which those revolutions are wrought the important thing is clarity and connectedness and uh, a uh, clear understanding of who one's antecedents are, what the source antecedents are, and what the target goal is. KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. a pale label for what is going on. New Age sounds too much like new Nixon, new Reagan, new retreaded everything. What is happening is an archaic revival, a harking back to cultural models 10 to 25,000 years old because the profane fall into history is actually ending. The way the fall into history ends is with the progeny of Adam, the human race, recovering the control of the human form, the control of the human soul, the ability to turn ourselves into whatever we wish to be. This comes through the union of imagination, through understanding, into nature the invocation of the dream. This is what the Australian Aboriginal Society is talking about. This is what the dream time is. Finnegan's Wake says, up nient, prospector, you, you warp your woof and spread your wings, sprout all your worth. This up nient, this end of time, this birth into angelhood lies ahead of us, but it is really part of the archaic return to the paradisical mode before history. The psychedelic hallucinogens are the catalysts. The minds that they touch become the catalysts 
within the society in general. And from there, the fashions, the social forms, the kinds of conscientiousness, the innate decency that is, uh, that is called forth by the authenticity of the experience is what will transform us. I mean, in the same way that uh, an affair can become a love affair if there is mutual authenticity of behavior rather than simply a kind of flirting flirtation. In, the, in that same way, our affair with Gaia can be a love affair if we can summon to ourselves the vision to make it so. And it means really being aware of the vastness of the options, of the precipice that late 20th century historical human beings stand on. We are about to leave for the stars. This is what is happening on this planet. A species prepares to depart for the stars. To do that, energy has to be marshaled. The lessons of the long march out of the trees and to this moment have to be collated, sifted, refined, concentrated. That is the alchemical gold. The historical process is the story of a prodigal son, of a wandering and a return. The return is meaningless without the wandering. The wandering has no meaning unless its fruits are given uh, birth after the return. And I think that the last thousand years has been the prodigal journey into matter. And it ends finally with modern pharmacology, modern ethnobotany, discovering in the jungles of the Amazon and the mountains of Mexico the body of Eros, Osiris, you know, fallen since the time of the flood, but awaiting the re-emergence of the cognizant human connection. That is what the archaic revival holds out. It's actually our salvation. I mean, I think I'm fairly hard-nosed. I don't see any hope for us. I don't see any hope for institutional transformation unless it is done with an awareness of the transcendental object. And the religions that we inherit from the past are so screwed up that the only way to validate and empower the transcendental object is by self-experience, by direct accessing. And people say, well, but can't it be done on the natch? No, it can't be done on the natch, generally speaking, because if it could be, it would have been done. I mean, we, there are plenty of elder societies on this planet who have the wrap down. You know, but look at the kind of societies that they erect. I mean, horrifyingly dehumanized societies seem to be the breeding place of the most sublime religions there are. So, no, I think it has to be, there has to be a humbling. We have to bow our heads and abandon the dualism that we inherit out of our uh, out of Christianity and science and the whole Judeo-Christian Islamic shtick 
we have to realize that it requires a symbiotic partner. It's a hand-in-hand effort. And if we are willing to take the hand which nature offers in, in the strange form of the alien vegetation spirit from the stars that seems to infuse us on plant hallucinogens, then we will go forward into a bright new world. It's a partnership. It's a challenge. It's uh, the only game in the planetary village. And uh, I appreciate your letting me share with you my notion of it this evening. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Terrence McKenna from 1994, I believe, Light of Nature. Wonderful stuff. I hope uh, some of the listeners out there were taking some notes. We'll take a little break here, play a little piece of music, and we'll come back and open up the phone lines, and I'll take a look in the chat room and see if anybody has any comments or questions that they want to put forward. I'd be glad to talk about this stuff a little bit more with you or anybody else. So uh, first off, the number here, 573-443-8255. 573-443-8255. I'll play a piece of music here, and you can call in the next few minutes, and I'll talk to you on the air. Or I'll um, be glad to address any questions or comments that show up on the Internet uh, website as well, in the chat room, or on the forum, or that I've gotten over the last hour or so from email, and I've gotten a few notes uh, in the email box as well. So anyway, thank you all for uh, listening to that. Wonderful stuff, my friend, Terrence McKenna. Wonderful stuff. And we'll come back in just a few minutes and talk a little bit more about it, okay? All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Let's see. Let's play, um, let's play Gertie's Jig. All right, this is, again, another song from uh, a tribute to Terrence McKenna called Journey Through the Spheres. This one's called Gertie's Jig. Back in a minute, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. We call these substances consciousness-expanding agents. Well now, if consciousness does not play a major part in the future history of our species, then what kind of a future history are we talking about? stupider, duller, more animal-like? I don't think so. Consciousness is our defining quality, and it must be nourished, encouraged, catalyzed, never more so than now, because we have a planet in peril.
adventure has fled. It's all humdrum. I just know, you know, that they have forgotten the five grams of psilocybin sitting in their refrigerator. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. We're about 20 minutes or so, I don't know, 17 minutes or so after 1 a.m. on Tuesday morning now, the 14th of November. And I hope you all enjoyed that. We just listened to a about an hour and 10-minute piece from Terrence Kemp McKenna called The Light of Nature. And wonderful stuff. Terrence's birthday is coming up on Thursday the 16th. He would have been 60 years old, as a matter of fact, born in 1946 in a small town in Colorado, as a matter of fact, up in the hill country. I actually spent a lot of time in my early adult years around the area where Terrence grew up, too. It's weird, all the synchronicities that come together when um, when you start to look closely at all these things, relationships that, and not just me, you know, you, yourself, everybody, the relationships we have with other people, how those relationships sort of come about and you know, when you look back at them with, you know, the benefit of 2020 hindsight, it's actually quite remarkable the way things happen. And Terrence actually mentioned in the talk that we just heard this idea that science tells us that history is basically a random walk. I think the, I think the terminology he used was trendlessly fluctuating where we have order in all these other different different systems, but then when we reach our own personal and uh, specific system of humankind, then order somehow seems to fail, apparently. And uh, uh, this is just nonsense. Order is here. And you can see it in your own life. I mean, it's amazing, if you're paying attention, uh, to watch the way your life works. Because, well, I mean, I guess I can only talk about my own life. But certainly it's not a random walk, I can tell you that much. And it seems to be guided by hidden hands of some sort. Or um, it certainly has a purpose of some sort. It doesn't seem to be random in any way to me. But I guess you'd have to judge your own life uh, through your own lens and decide what you think of it. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure there are people that believe that, uh, that it is like that. Certainly, uh, that's what the cultural programming suggests to us all. So, anyway, uh, let's open the phone lines here, 
if you want to give me a call. We can chat for a few minutes. Otherwise, I'll talk it up for a little while here, and we'll peek into the chat room here. Lots of interesting stuff come up over the last hour and a half or so. You know, one thing I'll say also, uh, I was taking some notes of my own while I listened to that uh, particular piece, and there was one point where, where Terrence made a reference to psychedelics and, psych- and, and psychology, and he compared them to the telescope and astronomy. In other words, the psychedelics to psychology were equivalent to the telescope in relation to astronomy, and that's a profound realization. It's actually something that um, Timothy Leary, one of Terence's inspirations, as a matter of fact, said probably a decade or two earlier. I found an old quote by Tim Leary where he said, at one point, consciousness-altering devices like the microscope and the telescope were criminalized for exactly the same reasons that psychedelic plants were banned in later years. Why? They allow us to peer into bits and zones of chaos. And this is what it comes down to with regard to the scientific paradigm. The scientific paradigm cannot stand, literally, uh, not metaphorically, will not be able to stand the acceptance of what the true psychedelic experience is because science rolls over at that point and it becomes no more than what it really is just a tool just a tool like any other tool not a meta tool not a meta theory not some grandiose institutional concept that can somehow judge everything that comes down the pike it's just not the way it works and so so science holds back on these things because uh, because the individuals in the scientific ex- uh, establishment are not ready to face what the tools of their own object, their own work, they're not willing to tell you what the tools have actually revealed. That's an amazing thing, actually, because because originally the tools of science did nothing but validate what science was telling you. But then they kept looking further, and they kept looking deeper, and pretty soon their own tools betrayed them because the tools of science have opened up the doors on the unimaginable. And they don't know what to do with the data. So they sublimate it, they hide it, they suppress it, they repress it, whatever. But, like Stephen Buhner says, it's the real deal. So as much as you try to hide it, as much as you try to ignore it, as much as you try to deny it, you can't. It's like trying to pave over the land with a sidewalk. You can do it. You can pour your concrete. But the dandelions still pop through. And I think that's what's happening here. All right, a couple things from, uh, from the web here. First of all, thank you to everybody who's participating. Soul and Zerofly, Bob Bolt, Will, Marbles, Larry, everybody out there, thank you so much for participating. And let's see, who um I'm not sure exactly who said this. I think it was I think it was Zerofly. But he says, Mike, can you mention this quote? The reason why the world lacks unity and lies broken and in heaps 
is because man is disunited with himself. He cannot be a naturalist until he satisfies all the demands of the spirit. And that's a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. And it's an interesting quote. And, uh, well, here's what I think about it. The reason why the world lacks... First of all, the world doesn't lack unity, in my opinion. It's a... Per, it, it, it's a perception of a lack of unity, but whether we like it or not, the world is united. The world is connected. There's nothing you can do about it. You can, you can deny it and act like it's not, but the world does not lack unity. The whole universe is united, and that includes our little corner of it here. Now, it does lie broken and in heaps, and that's for sure. And it is because man is disunited from himself, in my opinion. But himself has to be defined a little bit further. Man is disunited with himself because man is nature. Man is nature, a product of the natural world. Yet we have disunited ourselves with nature. We have separated ourselves from our source, from that great realm from which we come and no we cannot be a naturalist until we recognize that we are natural that we are of nature and this is what the spirit demands this is what the spirit does demand the way to resolve this problem is to reunite yourself with nature and you find a way to do it you know Terence had a great affinity for the psychedelic plants and he didn't mention it much in in uh, in this particular talk that that we just aired but uh, but the psychedelic plants were specifically uh, what Terence was interested in he wasn't interested in synthetics uh, he wasn't interested in things that didn't come from the earth well he may have been interested but he believed that the plants and the fungi were where the rubber hit the road and I happened to be cut from the same cloth and I have to agree I'm not into synthetics my rule is basically if it grows from the earth and you don't have to do anything to it other than maybe dry it it's okay by me and if you can find uh, ways in your own world to make this reconnection with the natural world you'll probably be better off for it and it's a, and it's a connection that's, that's, that's easily remade because it is who you are you know, this idea that man is disunited with himself is an amazingly interesting one because it implies symbiosis. If you look at nature as the object from which man has been disunited or separated from, you recognize that it's a symbiotic breaking of relationship. And we need the rest of the world. We need the rest of the world, the natural world. You know, we need air to breathe. We need water to drink. We need plants and animals to sustain ourselves, to eat. And so, reestablishing this connection between ourselves and our symbiotic nature with the rest of the world is the remedy. And it's very simple to do, again, because... It's who you are. It's where you came from. 
It's just that we've forgotten or we've been taught that this was not the case. Well, it's a matter of unlearning and relearning and, uh, and reestablishing these connections. And for us, gosh, we live here in Missouri. It's interesting. I live, you know, I live in Roachport, which is a little bit west of town. But I live in a natural environment, you know. We don't have, it's not suburban, it's not urban. It's country style, basically, you know. There's only seven or eight homes, you know, on a pretty good size chunk of land. And there are no rules and regulations and... We let our dogs run free, you know, and uh, there are critters galore, all kinds of them. You know, here in Missouri, it's amazing because we have so much water, and water is what draws life. I lived in Colorado for a long time, and I didn't realize how dry it really was there until I moved to Missouri. And when I recognized the amount of water that was here in Missouri... Not just in the streams and rivers and lakes and and coming out of the sky, but everywhere, you know. Um, and I compared it to Colorado. I recognized that Colorado really was a really dry place, even though I didn't realize it while I was living there. Well, I also recognized when I moved here that there was much more wildlife, mammals, and not not only mammals but insects and birds and you know all kinds of things. And the water is directly causative factor of that. There's so much water that it's just a lot of life. And where I live, you can't help but be connected to the natural world. Either that or you'll be miserable. I mean, you'll hate it and you'll leave, you know, because it's in your face all the time. But spend a little bit of time out there, and it doesn't take long, and all of a sudden the opposite scenario is the one that becomes ugly. You know, the city becomes a difficult place to be. And the concrete jungle becomes a different and difficult place to be. You know, we did this thing tonight for Terrence. Uh, Terrence had so many quotes that were quotable that, you know, you can't keep track of all of them. But one that I remember that comes to mind right now was at one time he said, We are jungle monkeys, but we live in a desert. And this could not be more true. We are jungle monkeys, and we live in a desert. And it's a, it's, a, it's a desert of truth and a desert of metaphor as well. This is the issue. This is the, this is, this is the problem that we face, is this disconnection with ourselves, with our natural origins, with our natural being. And reestablishing it is something that... Uh, you, know, you just have to decide if it's something that, 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 that you think is beneficial for you as an individual or not. It's a matter of where you place your bets. You know, For me, that's where I've placed my bets. I place my bets with the earth, with the plants. And, uh, and I guess we'll all find out how that all pans out. Soon enough, I have a feeling. Sooner than later, I have a feeling, too. Because the world is moving faster and faster and faster towards something that is unimaginable and you can feel it now you can feel it everybody can feel it now and nobody knows where it's going but everybody can feel it 
And if you can't feel it, you're just not paying attention. So make your own call, but recognize that the natural world is one that you are a member of, a part of, and a product of. And it's quite possible and quite beneficial to reestablish that relationship, to learn more about it. And one of the best ways to do that is through the plants, through the psychedelic plants, through the psychedelic mushrooms. They can really help clarify things, and, and they can give you a good look at who you really are. Unfortunately, many people really don't want to see that because it can be difficult, it can be painful, it can be hard because many of us are broken. You know, uh, this quote from Emerson, it says, the world lacks unity and lies broken in heaps. Well, the reason that the world lies broken is because the individuals that make up the world lie broken. It's fractal, just like Terence mentions. You know, it's a fractal thing that we're looking at. The world, a dysfunctional world, is only made up of dysfunctional individuals. So it's our job to become functional again as individuals on a personal, individual basis. Figure it out for yourself. Whether that means, you know, going to the Amazon and, uh, you know, and spending months with indigenous peoples there uh, and, uh, and doing what they do, or whether it means, you know, whatever it means to you, it doesn't matter. The point is that it's important to do. And if you find a way to do it, there's a good chance it'll be helpful to you. All right? All right, let's see. What else do we have here? Uh, let's see. Mike, please talk about how spirit in the world could be related to human-made visible language. Hmm. Well, we don't have a visible language right now. We have, a, we have an audible language, but we're moving towards a visible language, perhaps. Now, certainly we do have components of visible language. It's interesting doing radio because you have to do all your visual language with your voice. If you guys were all here watching me, and we were sitting talking in a room, drinking a beer, you could see my facial expressions. You could see the hand motions that I make. You can watch my body language. And body language is a visible language. And, uh, you know, words sometimes don't even have to be spoken when it comes to visible language. Think about what a woman can do to attract you without saying a thing. Think about what a child can do, what a baby can do to get a message across without saying a word, right? Visible language already exists, certainly. The idea that, uh, that Soul is talking about here, though, is a, is a furthering of that concept, an idea where the spoken word actually becomes something that's visible. And this is perhaps directly related to spirit in the world, Spirit in the world, as Terence was talking about earlier in the in the uh, in the show tonight, is something that has been lost. Spirit has basically been removed from matter. The materialists, the scientists, the reductionists, the positivists, for 500 years, have removed spirit from the world, removed spirit from matter, and what we're possibly witnessing now is the return of the word, the return of spirit into the world and visible language then becomes possible. If we can, if we can bring spirit back, then 
it becomes a visible language. It always was a visible language. It's just that it was lost. Now, whether we get it back the way it was in the archaic days, the days of the High Paleolithic or something like that, is, is as good a question as any. Or do we do it through technology, you know, through our own means, and somehow create a language that is, uh, uh, you know, visibly generated through some, side of, uh, some sort of technological prosthesis. But either way, visible language and spirit in the world go together because they both solve problems. If you can see language, it no longer has to be interpreted because you're looking at the same thing. If I say words to you, well, you can interpret the words one way or another, right? Because there's more ambiguity there. But when I'm speaking and it creates an artificial, I shouldn't say that, not artificial. When I'm speaking and it creates an artifact that can be beheld, can be looked at and shared by many people at the same time, well, then there'll be no question about what the discussion is about, right? And intentionality then becomes clear. Intentionality becomes clear. And deceit, deceit becomes much more difficult. You know, we were talking about body language just a minute ago. And for people who are observant and... Uh, and have refined their skills with regard to observing body language, doesn't matter what the person is saying. You know whether they're telling the truth or not. You can tell intention. Why? Not because of the words, but because of the vision. Because of what you see. Because of what you see. And the eyes, the eyes and vision, this is the sense that we put most of our, uh, most of our stock in, you know, we believe things when we see them much more profoundly than if we hear them or if we smell them or if we read them or if we touch them even. The eyes are where it's at. We believe things when we see them. So yeah, uh, spirit in the world, bring it back. Spirit back into matter. Bring on the visible language and maybe that helps us solve, uh, helps us solve some more of our problems. Let's see, what else do we have here? I'll tell you what, I'm going to play one more quick song here, and then I'll come back, address a couple more things, and, um, and finish things up, okay? All right, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia. About 120, eh, about 140, actually, in the AM now on November the 14th, okay? All right, it's Mike, and on the web, KOPN.org, and my particular website at www.mikehagan.org. Com. This one's called Voices in My Head. Ain't it the truth? You're feeling pretty comfortable here. Show me what you are for yourself. Show me what you really are. Well, immediately, the temperature drops. Black draperies begin to lift, and there's an organ tone straight out of the Bach B minor mass that shakes the room. And after about 30 seconds of this, you say, Enough already.
truths out there that the termite mind of man, I think, is not ready to, to handle.
Voices in My Head, that's Gamma Ray, another song from Journey Through the Spheres, a tribute to Terrence McKenna. And it's Mike Hagan, you listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, I meant to give away a copy of the CD, actually, early in the show. We only got 12 or 13 minutes left in the program, so the first person, I'm not going to answer the phone, so we'll have to do this via email or in... <laughs> Well, I'm going to say we've got to do it via email because if I do it on the chat room, it'll be just a war over this. So anyway, the first person to email me and tell me what the chemical composition of Cybin is, I'll give you a copy of uh, Journey Through the Spheres. I'll send it to you in the mail. Right? Just tell me what psilocybin is as far as the chemical makeup. Right? All right, uh, speaking of psilocybin, one of the uh, gentlemen here in the chat room says, Hey, Mike, please tell us on air your most favorite Terrence McKenna quote. Thanks for the show. Thank you for listening, Zero. And uh, my, my most favorite, I think my most favorite qu quote from Terrence, and I'll have to, uh, I'll have to paraphrase because I, I can't quote it directly because I don't remember exactly how he said it, but it went something like this. Will history end with the image of Strafaria cubensis? or with the invention of Edward Teller. This remains an unresolved question. <laughs> and I, I, as, as I think of that, it's amazing to me. You know, you have the mushroom cloud on the one shoulder, and you have the mushroom of the earth on the other shoulder. And it's interesting that these two things sort of developed along the same lines. We had the development of nuclear technology, the atomic bomb, happening in the 30s and into the 40s. We had, at the same time, 1938, the discovery of LSD, or the synthesizing of LSD, um, which was you know, based on a, on a plant compound originally by Albert Hoffman in 1938 in Switzerland. 1953, Gordon and Valentino Wasson bring psilocybin back. Then you have... DMT in 56 or 57, I think. Anyway, this whole thing is sort of a sort of a parallel evolution, and I think it's very interesting that uh, that the psychedelics came back into the uh, the cultural consciousness at the same time as nuclear weaponry did, and I really believe that that's sort of where we are. We sort of walk this fine line, this tightrope between the two. And, and I've said it before, it is no longer gray. We walk literally on the line that separates paradise and Armageddon. And we'll find out which way it falls. And we all, we all have uh, an influence on it. You know, It just depends on which way you lean. So I don't know what else to say, but uh, it's sure an interesting time. And we're going to have an opportunity to see some amazing... Uh, some amazing things one way or the uh, one way or the other we already are we already are all right let's see what else do we have here uh mike please comment tonight on the stoned ape theory of terence mckenna and any updates on brother dr dennis the stoned ape theory I, I we don't have time to get into it uh i would suggest that anybody out there interested in this material go out and take a look at a book that's called food of the gods a book that terence wrote back in the late 80s, early 90s, talks about this particular 
theory that is now, uh, uh, believe it or not, becoming one of the most, well, agreeable theories for evolutionary biologists out there. And long story short is that our ancestors, when they came out of the arboreal rainforest in Africa and were forced onto the plains of Africa because of climatic changes and uh, evolutionary pressures, that on the plains of Africa they discovered, while looking for food sources, which were scarce, discovered mushrooms of the variety that contained psilocybin. And uh, they began to eat them because they're tasty. And um, from there, uh, Terence extrapolates a jump, in, uh, a jump in human evolution. You know, our self-reflection coming from that exact uh, scenario. Anyway, uh, in detail for sure, on the web you can find lots of information about this, but just uh, uh, get a copy of Food of the Gods and put it on your Put it on your shelf and give it to somebody else after you've read it, okay? Dr. Dennis, I, t I spoke with Dennis, as a matter of fact, on, uh, what's today? Today's Monday. Friday, Thursday or Friday, I spoke with Dennis. I, I, I just sent a copy of um, uh, Jay Widener's most recent video, uh, 2012 The Odyssey, to Dennis. And, and Dennis lives in Vancouver now. He moved recently. And I had to make sure I had his right address. But anyway, Dr. Dennis is doing well. He's sort of acclimating himself to the uh, Pacific Northwest over there. And he's actually in Canada now and enjoying himself and doing great work as always. We'll get him on the air again sometime. I'm not sure. Probably be in the springtime before we have Dennis again. He's really busy, and there's not enough material, at least as far as Dennis is concerned. I could talk to Dennis all night, uh, but he's not quite as vocal as his brother was, and uh, unless he has real important and pertinent things to say, he's not uh, really interested in speaking that much. So anyway, Dennis doing great work. He's in the middle still of analyzing many of the samples that came back from Peru and from the Amazon that they received uh, earlier this year that had been in lockdown for the last couple of years. So a lot of great work still going on, and Dennis is at the forefront of much of this research. It's just he's much more quiet, um, much more quiet than, Dennis, or than, uh, than Terrence was. Let's see, uh, what else do we have here? We have about six minutes left in the show, but I'm going to keep talking because, believe it or not, the, uh, the radio station is going to go off the air as soon as I finish my program because the, uh, the overnight person who normally comes in is not going to be able to make it. That means that, uh, I can shut the station down if I want or I can just keep talking. So I'll just keep talking for a few minutes here so we don't have to end right at the 2 o'clock mark, but probably pretty quickly after that. <laughs> oh, Bob, that's funny. I just saw uh, something come up in the... Uh, in the chat room there. Anyway, let's see what else we talk. Um, uh, Mike Hagen, do you think sacred mushroom cultivation is getting and will get easier for humanity as we get closer to 2012? I have a one-word answer: yes. Uh, and no, Bob, you can't get your CD. Not unless you send that to me in email before somebody else does. And if you listen to the recording of this program, you'll hear that I said you had to send it an email. All right, what else are we going to do here? <laughs> uh, I'm not even going to repeat some of this stuff. All right, everybody, look, uh, it is an interesting time for everyone, no question about it. And the world is changing faster and faster. The best thing we can do is pay attention and uh, follow our hearts in this whole business, too. I think this is an important thing to say because there is so much information coming out. And, and uh, you know, when you listen to a guy like Terrence McKenna, you, you also uh, 
yeah, yeah, you also have to take into account that he was, you know, despised by many people, and that there are plenty of arguments that, uh, uh, you know, that will try to refute the ideas that Terence and people like him bring forward and have brought forward. But like anything, you have to use your own mind, your own heart, your own discernment, and try to decide what you think makes the most sense. And for me, as a talking monkey at this point in my life, with everything that I've been exposed to, the experiences that I've had as an individual, the ideas that Terence and others put forward are ones that make sense to me as an individual. And so I put my money there. I put my bets there because that's where my heart is. And I'm always interested in sharing these ideas and talking about them with other people. But I don't push them. You know, I'm perfectly comfortable with people who, who think these things are lunacy. That's their, their prerogative to believe what they will. I do have a feeling, though, that uh, we're going we're gonna to find out. I don't think this is a, I don't think this is a question that's going to go to the grave with us, not unless we die pretty damn quickly, because the processes that are taking place on this planet right now, and you can look in almost any, any field of endeavor, well, even the straight people who draw curves and propagate mathematical theories, they'll tell you if they're being straight, that uh, business as usual is no longer on the table, is no longer on the menu. Now, what's coming after that is, uh, you know, throw a dart. But that's where we come in, right? Because when the apple cart does get rolled over, when the paradigm does shift, when things do change, well, who's going to be there to see it? And who's going to be there to act upon it with reason? and with some intuition and heart. Well, the people that have considered these things already, the people, who, the people who have thought about these ideas, us, you know? There's one last thing that I'll mention here. I wasn't even going to bring it up. But somebody writes in the chat room here, I believe the world will ask for help from the psychedelic community around 2012 just because we are the ones who have the knowledge of people like Terrence McKenna. And, you know, Jay Widener said something like this the last time uh, I spoke with him, not on the air, but, uh, but, but off the air. There are people like us, you know, that, uh, that might, in the current context, be marginalized and considered weird and strange and far out or whatever. But there is a chance, certainly, that when things do change or if they do change in our lifetime and they change in the manner that we're expecting well then yeah we may be able to help and that's probably our job you know Terence used to talk about Terence used to talk about what was happening on planet earth as a teleological idea he mentioned the idea uh, the the concept of teleology in the talk that we just heard earlier tonight and teleology basically is the idea that the universe has a purpose, that it's moving towards something, that it's not a random walk, that it's not trendlessly fluctuating, that it has a purpose. And I believe that because I believe that the universe is fractal. And I know that I have a purpose, 
And that's, I believe that everyone has a purpose. Therefore, I believe that human history has a purpose. I believe that the universe has a purpose. I have a teleological view of the world. But uh, it's hard to say because it still lurks over the event horizon. We can't see what's coming yet. We can only feel the shadows and the projections of it towards us backwards into history as a matter of fact but Terence had this wonderful uh, metaphor that he used to talk about and the idea was that what is happening on this planet is not a catastrophe and that history is not a disaster or a nightmare even though it's been you know all the bloody backsliding and nastiness of history certainly it exists and it's not pretty, but it does have a purpose, perhaps. And this birth metaphor is one that I think is a legitimate one. And it basically goes like this. If you walked into a room and you had no knowledge of human physiology or the way mammals worked or anything about reproduction or anything like this, imagine you were an alien from a nearby star and you just beamed yourself into a delivery room at the local birthing center and you saw a woman who was giving birth you know what you would see is a horrible apparently situation you have blood and guts and screaming and swearing a tremendous amount of anxiety and pain and it appears to be a tragic situation and a crisis yet the result of this is a miracle a beautiful life a baby a new life but before that life appears you had no idea what you were looking at you thought you were looking at a catastrophe well that's a similar situation that we have here the world appears to be catastrophic. It appears to be in absolute crisis. Well, perhaps a baby's about to be born. And we just don't know it. So the way we look at it is in a way of fear and fright and crisis. Yet the actual outcome can be a miracle. And those of us who recognize this, who get these ideas a little bit more clearly in our minds, we are perhaps people who can help when the birth comes. Our job is not to tell anyone what's happening or to, or to pontificate about, you know, we know this or we know that. Our job is simply to midwife, to just help it along and help other people. Because there's going to be a huge wrench when this thing happens there's going to be a huge wrench there are going to be a whole lot of people that are looking for help people that are frightened and confused and perhaps this is where we can be of assistance by offering reasonable rhetoric about the future hopeful rhetoric about the future you know selling the future as a five alarm fire 
the way the media does it. If you watch the television or the radio or read the newspaper or whatever, the media is selling the future as a crisis. Uh, and to a certain extent, this may be accurate, but they leave out an important part. The crisis isn't a permanent one. It's a temporary crisis. The afterglow. What comes next? And this is where we may be able to be of some benefit. So, all of you out there, uh, I think we'll wrap it up right now, but thank you for participating. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm so grateful that I have the program to be able to share my thoughts, my ideas, and communicate with you all. So I thank you all for listening, and come on back next week. We'll have Father Thomas Doyle with us. And between now and then, just do your thing. All right, We've all got a part to play in this, and I'll keep trying to find mine if you keep trying to find yours. All right, we'll finish things off here with one more song from Journey Through the Spheres. This one's called Unity. It's Mike Hagan. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Come on back next week. Thanks for listening.